listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured episode 118. So the most dismal election season in recent history has been revived just in time for the holidays, with a landmark electoral victory for Columbia's Graduate Student Worker Union. We've covered this before in Belabored, uh, and it's been great to see their progress over these past couple of years. And now it has all culminated in the first formal National Labor Relations Board election since a landmark ruling was handed down to the Columbia graduate workers in August that certified their collective bargaining rights. The newly minted 3,500-strong union exercised union democracy by voting by about 1,600 to 620 margin to unionize with United Auto Workers. The union marks a new precedent in organized labor in higher education because it's the first union won through the federal election process since a decision in a case involving Brown University graduate workers effectively squelched the collective bargaining rights of graduate students. It negated an earlier precedent that did allow uh, graduate students to collectively bargain. And now that the pendulum has swung back the other way, that might not last under Trump, but for what it's worth, the Columbia workers got their union, it's official, and other campuses are soon to follow. We hear stirrings of similar organizing drives underway at the new school. Harvard students are planning to unionize soon as well as our Yale students. Um, this is a key vote for private university campuses because um, under various state laws, graduate students at state schools could unionize before. Um, the campaign involved plenty of backlash from the Columbia administration with much anti-union propaganda coming from the university leadership who argued that somehow collective bargaining would interfere with the scholarly rapport between students and the administration. The union, however, made an effective case that a better workplace with equitable wages, respect on the job, and decent schedules can make the whole university a better learning environment for both graduate students and undergraduates. The new official union will now focus on moving into contract talks, and the administration has so far acknowledged the vote results and there have been no challenges. But the group doesn't have a clear bargaining agenda yet. Uh, It's just committed to continuing its support for improving the day-to-day working conditions of their fellow students, which is basically what they were doing well before they had an election. It's committed to uh, continuing its support for winning expanded childcare subsidies, more equal job benefits for international students, and campaigning against sexual harassment and assault on the Columbia campus. Although the August ruling did open up a new window for organizing unions at private higher education institutions, it's unclear how long that window will stay open because the Trump administration is expected to appoint more conservative members to the National Labor Relations Board. But in the long run, the momentum is clearly on the side of the labor movement in higher education. It's fueled by solidarity with similar unionization drives for adjunct professors who are horribly underpaid and working in extremely precarious conditions, as well as campus maintenance workers and staff, such as those at Harvard, who recently went on strike to win equitable health benefits. The law may be one step ahead of the universities or occasionally one step behind, but as the pendulum swings back and forth, student workers keep moving forward steadily with or without official elections. North Carolina remains home to plenty of struggles for working people even after Governor Pat McCrory's loss in this last election. I checked in with friend of the show, Eric Fink, about the election results, what they mean for controversial HB2, which we discussed on Belabored episode 102. Okay, so we'll start with the good news. Um, Pat McCrory lost. Yes. Yes, and he finally admitted it. Yes. (laughs) That that took a minute, right? (laughs) Yeah, that took a little while. Um, You know, it did take a little while. And there was was some actual confusion on election day. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say really that it was legitimate because it was a function of a lot of the sort of repression, but there was real confusion, especially in Durham. So, you know, in fairness, it was not unreasonable to want to double check the vote in Durham because of the way it was confused. But way beyond that, he clearly was dragging his feet looking for, you know, any way to call this into doubt. 
Right, right. And the HB2, was a, this was a pretty central part of this campaign, correct? Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to explain the results in this state in any other way. The Republicans did well statewide. Trump got the same percentage of the vote statewide as the Republicans in the state house. You know, they got a pretty yeah. solid majority. And the only statewide races that the Democrats won was the governor, which was very close. And it's hard to see who are the people, you know, why would people not vote for Hillary Clinton, but vote for McCrory or at least, you know, but vote for Cooper or refrain from voting for McCrory. The only explanation anyone has is these were the sort of, you know, business oriented Republicans who were unhappy about HB2 because of the impact it had on tourism and business. So that's a somewhat useful lesson for organizing under Trump, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Then, you know, there were a couple of other statewide Democrats that won, but those were sort of weird. This Supreme Court race, you know, they run nonpartisan. Everyone usually knows what party the candidates are, but what what tends to happen is whoever's listed on the ballot first just tends to win. So that's probably what happened here. The attorney general candidate won. He ran a much better campaign. I think that, you know, that was distinct to that race and the, um, I think I think it's the auditor general. Um, she's the incumbent. You know, people like her. She does a good job. But you know, other than that, I mean, the, the the Democrats did not do well in this state, other than the governor's election. Since you mentioned the state supreme court, I, I feel like it uh, segue into the fact that uh, there's still shenanigans possibly happening right now. It, it never ends, and I, you know, I think the real story, and this has been the story already in North Carolina, but the real story coming out of the election is that this Republican majority simply has no interest in electoral democracy. They've made that very clear. We saw this before. There's how many, it's hard to keep track, how many gerrymandering lawsuits are there. Those, you know, were the result of the state before. So both the the Supreme Court just heard arguments for the congressional districts, the Federal court locally has ruled special elections for the state um, House and Senate because of those. And now it was just announced that there's going to be a trial in this suit about an attempt to change the city council district here in Greensboro, where I live. So this was already going on. And now their latest thing is the incumbent Republican lost the Supreme Court seat. A Democrat picked it up. This gives the Democrats a, a majority. And the response seems to have been, oh, hey, let's just change the law to add two more seats that McCrory can fill before he steps down and we'll have magically a new Republican majority. They called this special session for disaster relief because we had the hurricane and the fires. So far, they haven't done anything. Now they've announced there's going to be a second special session and they won't say yet what the agenda is. One possibility is they still might try this court packing. The news I've seen, it sounds like they may have backed off. Some fairly prominent, you know, prominent within the state Republicans have said they don't think it's appropriate. Yeah. So uh, they may be shelving that. But what people think they are going to do in this extra special session now are change the rules for appointments by the governor. When McCrory was elected, the Republicans changed the rules to give him the authority to take more people out of civil service and make more jobs of political appointments. Now, a Democrat's coming in, they want to flip the switch back. And that looks likely to happen. So, again, it's just, you know, we have these elections. They don't like the results of the elections. So then they go ahead and they change the results of the elections. So if... HB2 was the big question in this election. Um, what does that mean for that going forward? Are they likely to overturn it? I, you know, I don't think so. That's the weird thing and the frustrating thing. Um, I think that what happened is that McCrory ended up being the fall guy. He wasn't mm-hmm. really the prime mover of this. This was, you know, Phil Berger and other folks in the state legislature. Um, he signed it because they told him to sign it. Um, But he ended up taking the fall, and they, and I think that's what happened, and I think the reason he ultimately gave in, you know, and this is just speculation, but I think that they just decided, you know, we're not going to back you anymore. You'll be the sacrificial lamb, 
the Democrats get their scalp, but they have shown no interest, the Republicans in the General Assembly, in any moderation. And the talk that's coming out of them, uh, you know, I don't see any prospect that they're going to come up with any meaningful repeal. You know, they may, they tried some half-baked repeal earlier. But no, I, I think that what they're hoping now is that now everyone will just sort of give up on it or forget about it. So if they're calling special elections for the, the state legislature, then uh, are you going to run again? Yeah, I, I, I might. It's a little bit complicated. The order specifically applies to a total of 28 seats um, mm-hmm. in the General Assembly. and It's mostly House seats, a few Senate seats. And those are the seats that were specifically um, racially gerrymandered, where they packed in African-American Latino voters. So the seat that I ran in, Burger Seat, is not one of those seats. The seat immediately to the south that's about two blocks from my house, that is one of those seats. So all they are required to redraw are these 28 seats. Obviously, redrawing those is going to affect some of the bordering seats, and the special election would be for any change seats. But if a district is not changed, then the special election wouldn't apply. So, you know, we'll... I'll be waiting till March. The, the, the deadline for the new map is supposed to be March. And, you know, be, it's possible that Burgers District will get redrawn. And if that happens and if I'm still in it, um, because I used to be in the other district, um, but if, if, if all of that happens, then I'll definitely run. But, you know, it's conceivable, not, you know, not because Phil Burger is particularly afraid of me, but because he's the leader, they may just leave his seat alone to not make him have another election. You know, so that's a big question mark there. The person who's the incumbent in the seat that is changing is someone I actually really like, Gladys Robinson. She's an African-American Democrat. She's one of the most progressive in the state. So, you know, I'll certainly be supporting her, whatever that outcome. That was Eric Fink, and we will, of course, keep you up to date from North Carolina. And if you are in North Carolina, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Now, we know CEO pay has soared to astronomical levels over the past few decades, while ordinary people's wages have either stagnated or declined. But politicians have generally treated this tremendous income inequality as just part of the American creed, since the idea of capping anyone's pay would be seen as unconscionable. Against American values, even. But the city of Portland made history by becoming one of the first major cities to enact legislation that directly tax excessive corporate executive pay. The principle of the law just approved three to one by the city council, is to redistribute Portland's extremely skewed income balance across the workforce by taxing CEO salaries for publicly traded companies if the annual reported salary is at least 100 times higher than the salary of a median worker. Under that surcharge, which is based on a tiered formula that's designed to make the tax code more progressive, a CEO salary with at least a 100 to 1 ratio to the median worker would pay 10% of what the company pays in regular business tax. For even higher inequality, 250 times the salary of a median worker or more, uh, the surcharge would rise to 25%. Um, of the uh, regular business tax. The tax is expected overall to impact about 500 companies across the city, and it's intended to bring in about $2.5 million annually starting in January 2018. Hopefully the funds will go towards boosting services for the homeless, and Commissioner Steve Novick actually cited Thomas Piketty's theories on the harmful social impact of huge wealth inequality noting the trends throughout the global economy of increasing wealth consolidation at the very top of the income ladder. Though this is one of the more ambitious efforts so far by any U.S. city to redistribute income, it follows a similar philosophy that is driving the ongoing nationwide campaign for a so-called Robin Hood tax, which would tax financial stock market transactions to extract some of the enormous wealth generated through the finance industry. Other cities have been weighing tax policies that target businesses that pay especially low wages. And, of course, there's always the good old minimum wage, but as we've seen, the initiatives to raise the minimum wage have often met with resistance, and frankly, there just isn't enough money going around 
in the lower income brackets truly ensure a fair distribution of wealth, you really have to look at the very top of the economy for that. Of course, businesses have complained that they're already overtaxed and this would be an unfair limitation on growth. But for the rest of us, the 99%, it's clear that a truly progressive tax code would need much more social intervention to reverse the concentration of wealth at the top 1%. Unless you live under a rock, you have not missed the hype around and subsequent debunking of and Twitter battles about the deal to save some of the jobs at Carrier's plan in Indiana. From the campaign trail, Trump focused on the proposal to close two facilities at Carrier and ship some 2,000 jobs to Mexico. He even possibly chose his vice presidential candidate, Mike Pence, because Pence was governor of Indiana and thus could be influential on the issue. As I discussed on the last episode, the carrier deal, as announced, hasn't had its critics, including Senator Bernie Sanders. But since we recorded that last episode, even more has come out about the purported deal, and our president-elect decided to take to Twitter to start a fight with the carrier workers and the local president. That's because it turns out that the already not great deal was even less of a deal than we thought. Carrier, in turn, is saving less than 800 jobs at the Indianapolis plant in exchange for $7 million in tax incentives for its parent company, United Technologies. Meanwhile, the other plant in Huntington, Indiana, is still closing, putting 500 people out of work in a county that saw 72% vote for Trump. Bob Breedlove, a Trump voter who works at the Huntington plant, told reporters, my tax dollars are going to save them, but they aren't going to help save my job. I know how much money this company makes. They don't need our help to stay in business and make a profit. If all that wasn't enough, when Chuck Jones, the president of United Steelworkers Local 1999, criticized Trump's deal-making abilities, pointing out the inflated numbers, Trump attacked him on Twitter, which resulted in a bunch of Trump fans finding Jones' phone number and sending him threats. Meanwhile, Jones told reporters that Trump's criticism means that Jones is doing his job. And of course, there's also the story that Carrier plans to use some of that money and tax incentives that it's getting in order to look into automating the jobs that they still have. Well, immigrants were the favorite scapegoat of Donald J. Trump on the campaign trail. And now that he's heading towards the White House, You can understand why some immigrant communities are very, very nervous about what he'll do, even if he only accomplishes about 10% of the kinds of terror that he promised to rain down on immigrant communities while campaigning. So we caught up with two local community activists here in New York City, Rosanna Aran of the Laundry Workers Center and Christina Fox. They are both working with local immigrants, working in low-wage and unregulated industries. They are advocating around workplace justice campaigns, rights for the undocumented, and generally just trying to make immigrants more visible as a political voice. And their new campaign is called Hashtag We Are Visible. And we talked to them about how not to give in to fear and instead advance the causes of immigrants under the manner of both racial justice and labor justice. I know that you were active before the election and you continue to mobilize with some of your member groups. And I was just wondering if you could provide a kind of post-election update on what your activities are now and how you're sort of reorienting things. Yes, yeah, so like um, before the election, we come together with this organization and form um, Somos Visible because we know that, you know, immigrant people, they're going to face many things, any outcome from the election. Somos Visible is like a, a different organization that came together. It's a movement that's trying to bring uh, people from out, from out the shadows and uh, the people that live in the community, they can be part of the decision-making process. And we are not talking about an election. We are talking about, you know, the basic things that occur in the com- in their communities. Um, something that we are doing is um, calling um, our members and, like, you know, trying to support them um, in any situation that they need support. With um, Somos Visible, what we are trying, we launched the, the the movement with a radical action, which was like um, 
different activists um, from different organizations, they closed the line of the Washington Bridge. Um, and it was like a very powerful action where people show like, you know, we are here and um, um, we have to organize, we have to raise up, um, we have to stand up. And so since the election, we know what's going to happen now. How is that going to change the scope of your organizing or maybe the targets of your organizing, if at all? Are you feeling more empowered? Are you feeling more under threat under the prospect of a Trump administration? Well, in in our case, I think, like, um, um, there's a combination. Uh, We know that it's going to be... Um, a difficult moment, but also now more than ever, we know that we have to organize and that we have to um, empower our our members and our communities. And what we know is that we have to be careful, be careful with many things, but um, we feel empowered at the same time. What is an appropriate, I guess, sir? Um, kind of a, a, a solid community response that you can take at this point, given that maybe the, the, the types of risks you're facing as organizers has shifted under Trump? I think from, like, even just, you know, speaking, like, individually as an activist, but in general, I think all of what we're looking at is expecting a lot of what we do to become a little bit more criminalized than it was in the past. I think that's easy to say. But... That being said, when checking in with kind of community members on the street and, and in the centers to asking about their priorities, it's been a lot about kind of knowing, you know, more than knowing your rights, also knowing how we should do in the case that something happens. So they want to know what's what. Uh, they want a clear idea. And so that's where, you know, know your rights is actually a really important thing of what we do. People to be conscious and aware of what's going on around us. But that needs to also sometimes be taken to another level because you can know your rights and at the same time that somebody's violating them, you're just aware of the fact that they're doing it, but you might not have other recourse. And so that's where what we have been doing over the years, you know, across Mm -hmm. like different organizations is exactly what we've been preparing for. So, you know, places like across the city, like the folks you're talking to us right now who you're talking to, it's really just um, a reminder that, you know, we're already organized. Um, and that's that's the kind of strength that we have is that we're going to be able to become aware of these things and then kind of enact a way to some plan or some way to kind of continue to protect our rights, exercise our rights um, collectively. So the priorities of our members right now are that they want to know um, and that they want to be prepared. Um, yeah. So we're looking into that kind of like emergency preparedness, but more fundamentally, you know, there's a lot of people asking, you know, what's next? What's going to happen with this person? And so it's really just a matter of, uh, doing what we've been doing, um, but making sure that our community is accounted for, nobody's disappearing, and that we have, you know, plans in place. We're prepared that if something happens, um, to take action. Not just wait either, um, but to be ready now, kind of make those plans now. Um, so that's the keeping ourselves safe, but the importance of the of being able to kind of take that offensive stance, like um, mm-hmm. a little bit like what Rosanna was talking about, is really the importance of, like, um, rather than waiting and, and seeing, like, what's going to happen, also kind of having a, a say in what's going to happen. Like, well, instead of waiting, and a lot of people, you know, I hear saying, well, let's wait and see. I think it's really important that we, we gear up and, and activate our communities to instead make them see instead of just kind of waiting and seeing what happens and having to be reactive. In terms of just looking at, you know, uh, how to navigate this sort of, uh, you know, line between the defensive stance and the offensive stance, can you talk about how the issue, uh, like sort of the more the more advocacy-driven campaigns you've been involved with are maybe coming into play here? Because I know that, you know, in terms of working for proactive um, changes, you're involved with workers' rights campaigns, various workplace justice campaigns, and trying to get justice for immigrants regardless of their legal status, right? And so how is is Trump maybe going to derail some of that or make you guys reassess um, what the priorities are and, and how do you expect to do things like advocate for a fair wage or to stop wage theft against immigrants when they feel like they may actually be under siege in a much more existential way, I guess, under Trump? It's... It could be like a little more um, hard 
but at the same time, well, like Christina say, um, it's more about you know political consciousness, uh, about knowing your rhyme, um, about educate people, and at the same time, power thing. Uh, and like uh, you know, it's it's gonna be maybe a little more hard, but uh, I think like uh, it's what we are doing right now, and like we just have to enforce um, that, and like uh, you know. Show the people that um, you know this is it's just about a system, a system that you know can uh, any person that's gonna be there is gonna oppress the the people the the working class and the people of color and like we just have to be like all the time in the fight, um, fighting for our rights. Yeah, and I guess if you already have a core base of immigrant labor activists who are already in these communities and they know how to organize and all sorts of things, not just about getting people out of detention, but I mean also, you know, um, taking actions against employers and stuff, that is useful to have, right? You have people with those skills. Um, are those experiences of past campaigns, I guess, c you know, coming coming into play now? Um, you know, how are you able to use some of the tactics and maybe the coalitions that you've built um, to prepare for the next presidency. Can you talk about the groups that you've partnered with um, or the types of campaign strategies that you've been using? We all the time work with different groups in the community every time that we have a workplace justice campaign because we believe in solidarity. And, like, um, I think, like, why we have victories because we create a place where, like, you know, everybody can come and like put um, their skills in support of the workers and like we're gonna continue working in that way because it's our model yeah regardless of the campaign i think many of our campaign work will service in the past because it's, it's how we've been able to get organized in the sense that you know we're able to call allies to show up for us and kind of fight alongside us stand alongside us make, you know, statements of solidarity and act in solidarity. Uh, and I think Rosanna makes up the the best point there, too, that it's also members having been able to recruit other members in the past, really be leading these campaigns, is how, you know, workers are going to be able to kind of continue to exercise the things that they've been practicing, you know, be it standing up to, you know, a boss or somebody that's being unfair or abusive, being able to make sure everybody around you knows those rights and can stand in solidarity with you, that together we're stronger. And also, like, thinking about we can't really, we don't know what to anticipate, but we can be prepared for whatever comes because we've been able to kind of organize strong against, you know, plenty of different things in the past. I think it's going to be, it's going to be telling for us to be able to, um, like, use the tools and things that we've been able to organize and be able to shift them to make them useful to, to these kind of things. So things like the the Jornalero app, for example, that our members just released, it's to report wage thefts and be able to communicate alerts amongst yourselves. But we're, you know, it serves for the needs of the members, so it doesn't have to just be labor abuses. This can also incorporate, you know, protection against whatever comes at you or your workplace and be able to communicate through these tools and organizing strategies that members have been able to, and like our coalitions have been able to develop, are going to really just be put into action in this context. I guess I'm just wondering if you see any additional obstacles for something like, say you're trying to unionize a shop or something like that. It doesn't feel like, to me, that it would get a whole lot easier under Trump for a variety of reasons. Um, but are you are you kind of saying that you just need to hold steady and, and not let fear take over? Or are you changing some of your tactics in some ways? Or maybe being a little more vigilant? I think that's exactly it. I think we are reminding ourselves of the kind of like courageous and incredibly powerful things our community has been already been able to do um, and that we're not uh, reacting maybe in the way that other folks are um, because we were recognizing and remembering that. Now we know that what's coming is regardless going to not be easy. Like I, there's really no way to know exactly what's hands in the fate, but that kind of confidence and what we already know how to do and the strength we already know we have is going to be really important. But on that same note, it's going to be incredibly important for our allies and for other folks uh, across the communities that we work with and within our communities to to stand boldly with us. You know, this is going to be a yeah. time that we're going to have to be very strong and we're going to have to 
be very bold and we need folks that are going to be able to do that with us that aren't really willing to negotiate with our well-being. I, I agree. I agree with that. Like, more than ever, we need, like, to show solidarity. And, like, I think the movement have to understand that, like, if uh, one of us is hurt, um, everybody's going to be hurt. So, like, um, I think the movement have to, like, every time that somebody is, is getting hurt, we need to stand up and we need to make this across um, the cities. Um, that's why we, like, with um, some of the siblings, we're trying to connect with different, you know, states um, and different people to um, to connect because at the end we are working for one, just one thing. It's like, uh, you know, the working class and the immigrant people. We have to be able to, to connect each other to um, support each other. Yeah, totally. Can you give me a sense of the types of groups that you guys are working with now? I, I feel like there are a lot of different immigrant groups that are being targeted and everyone's feeling under the same siege. But I know that, you know, Trump has has said this about going after, um, you know, people from uh, so-called Muslim countries and and um, and he's gone after this about building a wall. And he's just said all sorts of things. Are you trying to reach out to different communities or maybe trying to um, f- figure out how to maybe um, look at how different communities are faring differently under the, 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 the risks of a Trump presidency? We always work with different pe- uh, like people from different backgrounds. Uh, for example, we are partnered with um, Jeff Rave, which is the Jewish for Russian economic justice. You know, the Jewish people are being very attacked in the, during the campaign, Trump campaign. We are part of the Workers' Center Federation, with bring different workers' centers together in New York City. We are part also of the Fuchin Workers' Alliance that have different, you know, I'm talking about, you know, Laundry Workers' Center and also NICE, I know that mm-hmm. is part of those um, groups too. Like, um, that bring, like the Fuchin Workers' Alliance have multiple um, organizations and unions that um, work for, like, in support of uh, food workers. And, like, um, yeah, we are part of different coalitions um, in New York and in New Jersey. Right now, in New Jersey, we're trying to um, to pass, you know, to introduce a bill for two cities to become a sanctuary city. And just to clarify, and New York already has um, some kind of sanctuary city type protection for immigrants. Is that right? We are trying to introduce a, a, like a bill to, to you know to to become two cities um, in New Jersey um, in sanctuary cities. And 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 I think um, would would you say New York is a sanctuary city? I mean, that's what some people in the media are calling it. Yeah, New York and uh, the mayor. Uh, and the council members will attest that New York is a sanctuary city, which means that there are some protections for um, undocumented folks. You know, there's not, you know, there was an agreement to not coordinate with secure communities, things like that. That was a process in a lot of spaces. Um, the details, I want, you know, I'm not going to go into like a ton of details, but while there are protections for undocumented folks here in New York City, mm-hmm. home rights are still happening. ICE is still in our communities. Um, so, it is not an ice-free city, um, although it does offer sanctuary. You guys need a new a new label or something like an like an extra. Right. It's a little misleading, so. yeah. <laughs> like an extra level of uh, of sanctuary. Um, well, I mean, on that yeah. note, um, uh, like talk a little bit about how you guys are interacting with um, authority and institutions at this point. We now see. Um, what looks like a, a new wave of organizing around, say, uh, you know, sanctuary campuses, um, which again is this other broadly defined thing. It's it's hard to really get grips on what people mean by sanctuary campus. But are you trying to sort of uh, strengthen some of the relationships you've built up with, say, local politicians or even you know local law enforcement agencies in terms of just getting some clarity on what you are protected from and what you aren't protected from. I think it kind of goes back to our answer from before. It's really continued conversations with our allies who have stood with us in the past and make those statements of solidarity. That it's going to be a matter of like when the time comes to really see um, how folks are willing to kind of stand with us in those moments. I think, you know, there's always a lot of support in the city for different things from different places. 
but I think those conversations are are to come. I think like folks are took a, had the process for a little while. You know, some folks even still kind of grieving, reacting some. Um, then I think it's been a matter of kind of organizing ourselves and our priorities, and then just like any organizing campaign, it's finding the allies that are going to kind of stick with us. Uh, I think there's a lot of people, I think it's a lot of power and a lot of people coming together, you know, a lot of legal service providers offering to organize themselves, mental health workers, um, social workers, all kind of willing to coming forward and offering their service, community members. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways to plug in, but really just make sure that that support and resources are there, be it for, you know, if there's legal assistance that's needed, if there's, um, you know, uh, trying to kind of deter uh, a raid or a deportation, there's a lot of different groups that are working right now, and then it's just going to be important to make sure that the groups are coordinating well amongst themselves to be able to provide resources where needed and are stepping up in the right times. Moving forward, it looks like cities will kind of have a special role um, in terms of protecting immigrant groups and protecting other vulnerable groups. And I know that in many ways, we're, we're lucky in New York to, if I can say that, to, to have um, at least some kind of infrastructure for for supporting and, and for activism, right? I mean, I, I imagine that in, in more isolated places, it's it's not such a, it's a much more hostile atmosphere. Um, can you put this in the national context and talk about the role of cities like New York and, and maybe what people who aren't in, in such relatively secure places should should be looking towards right now? New York, like you mentioned, we have a lot of benefits for immigrant people. And, like, I mean, like, if we are talking about other places that are isolated, like you mentioned, but all that I can say is, like, if you feel like those people that live in those um, states or those cities and they, and they, you know, they are under this situation, um, they have like go and look for support and like go to any um organization or community or like group that can you know that can connect you and support you um and like uh, i i feel like um this city as well as um other cities it represent a be a, a huge um like for me, it means a lot that uh, people here are like you know taking the lead and like you know show that we solidarity with with other people in the in the, in other states in other cities. Going forward, what can other activists and other groups maybe learn from what the immigrant rights movement has done um, so far? given that you find these tools that you've been cultivating under Obama to be even more useful under a Trump administration, right? Immigrant rights groups have been doing this for a long time now. Are there any kinds of guidance that you can put forward to people who maybe aren't so used to operating under siege? Yeah, just kind of um, getting a kind of pulse and a temp check on, on the city and the kind of work we're doing and like where we are in our work. I think um, everywhere from Black Lives Matter to migrant movements to indigenous movements right now, there's a lot of things moving at once. And I think collectively uh, there's a recognition that our power is going to be very important and to kind of connect all those dots. So all it's, it's up to, right now it's a moment for um, folks from the cross movements to really figure that out, um, figure out how to connect those dots. You know, what does, um, this massive threat of deportation, where does it connect with indigenous movements, uh, you know, displaced natives, um, and how does that connect to, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and the new Jim Crow in this country? So I think leaders from across movements right now are really figuring out um, the moments where we learn from each other and where we connect our, our collective power. And just like all allies and folks involved in this work, I think it's important for folks stepping in to... Um, follow that leadership of the community itself. So it's important for us to follow the leadership of our own community members and and for them to lead the work as well as, you know, continuing to kind of collaborate and learn from other folks. But for folks that maybe are, are new to kind of movement work or are feeling, you know, a shift from the election and things like that, um, it's, you know, to get involved and support, offer support and service to the, to the Lucha. Any skills that, if people have skills 
um, just come and join, join the movement because we need it. And to end on a call to action, I guess what can uh, what can people listening do to get involved directly, especially if they're in the New York area and um, you know have maybe a, a direct access to to some of the campaigns you're doing now. Um, I'd say plug in and, and get in touch. Although I think, um, like a lot of folks, a lot of us are kind of figuring out how to how to support the, the kind of big waves of support that's come out. Um, but that's with excitement that we do that, right? So we've gotten a, you know a lot of folks reaching out, and I'd say continue to kind of le- reach out to your community-based organizations, um, but specifically like uh, like grassroots member-based organizations like Laundry Worker Center, like nice, like like worker centers, honestly, where you know you're going to find the community and connect to community-based defense projects, defense committees, um, go out and flyer, find ways to to kind of connect and also be patient and support and kind of as we're building this together. That was Rosanna Aaron of the Laundry Worker Center and Christina Fox of New Immigrant Community Empowerment. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show. Arrgh! I wish I'd written that. The past month has been exhausting, to say the least, and one of the most exhausting parts has been the never-ending flow of depressing news and outright panic spreading across social media. The sky may in fact be falling, but we are not still powerless to resist. And in fact, many people have been thinking about what strategies for defeating Trump and those like him are like. And of course, despite the media focus on the ways Trump is unique, there are many, many ways in which we do know what he is likely to do. Two of the people who've been thinking about that are Maurice Weeks and friend of the show Stephen Lerner, who have a piece up at The Nation called Five Practical Principles to Guide Our Work Under Trump. These principles are about understanding the situation in order to understand how to beat it. They begin by noting that the crisis is global, that Trump might be an American phenomenon, but he is part of a global rise in right-wing populist movements in response to global economic conditions. They write, quote, neoliberalism is failing for increasing numbers of people around the world, and its failure has created the conditions that has allowed the right wing to increase its power by targeting immigrants and people of color. Two seemingly contradictory things are happening at once. The right wing has captured the anger over its failures, and the corporations and the super-rich who benefited from neoliberalism are now offering themselves as the solution to the crisis they created. To fight that, Weeks and Lerner argue, the left needs better and simpler narratives. The right gives people someone to blame by telling a simple story that is ultimately untrue but compelling. It creates villains out of black mothers, immigrant workers, Syrian refugees. To counter that narrative, we have to point out who is really at fault. And it doesn't hurt, probably, that Trump is assembling a cast of cartoon villains in his administration for this task. They write, quote, We need to demystify what is going on in the economy and develop tools that make the economy and how it works understandable. In terms of that narrative struggle, it must also be one that takes deadly seriously the fight against racism. There can be no pandering to racist fears like those peddled recently against Congressman Keith Ellison, who is running to lead the Democratic Party. But there must also be an acknowledgement that if labor and the left are not organizing white working people, others will be. They write, quote, organizing white workers into a multiracial anti-racist movement is both a challenge and a necessity. And finally, the most important principle Go on the offense. It can be very easy to get stuck in defensive battles, but in fact, without countering the Trump agenda with something better, there is no victory possible. The challenge before us, they conclude, is to make life in Trump's America unbearable for the newly enshrined and empowered billionaire class and their allies while offering a plan of action to win the country and world we want to create. My pick is by Sakivu Hutchinson in the LA Progressive. It's called Betsy DeVos, Education Secretary and the Looting of Public Education. And as a side note, I read this alongside Catherine Stewart's piece in the New York Times talking about Betsy DeVos's godly vision for schools. And I thought the two made a good pairing. So Hutchinson opens up with the line, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And that quote is one that we associate historically with Jim Crow, but 
Hutchinson makes the case that Betsy DeVos, while she is not uh, quite as terrifying in image as white supremacist Alabama Governor George Wallace, who that original quote belongs to, uh, she nonetheless poses a pretty grave threat to the nation's schoolchildren. But DeVos does have some education experience, if you can call it that. She's a notorious advocate of charter schools and school vouchers in Detroit and has deep ties to both the corporate world and the world of big philanthropy. But wait, there's more. A few advocates have pointed out that Divas isn't just pro-privatization. She's pro a very specific type of privatization that drives the education directly from the public trust into the hands of God. Divas come... Devos comes from a large network of Christian conservatives who link their neoliberal pro-privatization agenda to their vision of a nation ruled by Christian evangelical values. Hutchinson writes, quote, As many left progressive and secular critics have pointed out, the linchpin of Devos's agenda is an assault on secular education. The Devos Foundation has bankrolled the ultra-conservative homophobic Family Research Council, and sponsored scores of insidious school choice bills from Michigan to Wisconsin. It's part of an extensive network of right-wing foundations, institutes, and think tanks that subscribe to the, quote, dominionist belief that, quote, Christians must take control over societal and governmental institutions. DeVos's influence as an architect of checkbook theocracy in education is unparalleled. But it's important for progressive humanists to understand that DeVos's reactionary activism is not simply limited to the usual church-state separation issues vis-a-vis science literacy and white Christian fundamentalist efforts to shove creationism down students' throats. A cornerstone of the Christian rights privatization agenda is the destruction of racial justice in education and a Dixiecrat return to separate and unequal schools. And she explains that the agenda of school segregation actually goes hand in hand, believe it or not, with the agenda of bringing Christian values into schools. If you look at uh, the simultaneous effort to undermine the very foundation of public education itself, which is essentially to help desegregate society and create a more integrated democracy. Thus, Hutchinson writes, as Secretary of Education, DeVos would most likely steamroll educational justice activists' efforts to redress the federal government's neoliberal focus on charter schools, union busting, drill-and-kill high-stakes tests, and the militarization of school campuses, unquote. Teacher unions have long sought to push back against the corporatization of schools, of course. We've covered that here on Belabored. But what unions and educators should realize is that under DeVos, it's not just about Silicon Valley entrepreneurs looking to burnish their resumes with these fancy philanthropic ventures. Who controls the schools in society is ultimately about determining who gets to frame the cultural discourse. The reason why DeVos's agenda is so dangerous should also point us to a more comprehensive alternative vision for education that counteracts both aspects of DeVos's double threat of religion and privatization. The reason why those two ideological planks are so disturbing is that they undermine the two essential foundations of schools in that they attack the cultural basis of schools as a place of intellectual development and social exchange. She threatens to do that by squelching free thought and imposing religious ideology. Um, But in addition, they attack the architecture of schools as a civic resource and a place, a safe space, if you will, where democracy can develop and flourish for our youth. And she's doing this by simply shutting down schools, usually on the pretext that they are, quote, underperforming. So these twin ideologies of ultra-Christianity and ultra-Catholicism actually do form a coherent worldview that is instructive to activists who want to push things in the opposite direction. DeVos has an agenda that puts self-interest, patriarchy, and the pursuit of wealth above all other public concerns. But her ideas about schooling might actually have some appeal because it promises a romantic vision of community control, suggesting to a certain segment of society that God will bring values and inspiration to the institutions where kids develop under the guidance of their neighborhoods and their churches. Obama offered an even less coherent vision by making many public schools more segregated, more underfunded, more overstressed, and generally worse places to work. And in addition, they ended up making school incredibly dull and uninspiring. 
So to counteract Trump's agenda of turning schools into mini theocracies, progressive humanist education activists have to advance a vision that really justifies the state's civic role in education. It can't just be about fighting for bigger budgets or smaller class sizes. Teachers need to be at the helm of a more coherent ideological battle for the soul of public education because they have, frankly, as much at stake as the kids do in this fight. Not only do they risk losing schools as a community resource, but their livelihoods are at stake under an agenda of dismantling and defunding public schools as a whole. So Betsy DeVos will enter office next year with a clear-eyed vision for remaking the education system in God's image. People who still believe in educational democracy, however, have to have a parallel vision for how to remake the education system in the image of the world we want. And it can't be the world that Donald Trump wants us to live in. And that just about does it for this episode of Belabored. Happy holidays, everyone. Hope you have a very safe and warm break from work with you and yours. And please do not forget to visit the Descent Magazine website to check out opportunities to become a sustaining member to purchase, say, a gift subscription for someone you love and maybe even to get a free tote bag to go along with your donation to use as a stocking stuffer or pay even as a stocking alternative. If you would like to contact us with show ideas, uh, hopes for the new year, if you have some cool plans to uh, shake things up at the inauguration in D.C., please let us know at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. And you can also tweet at us about how Donald Trump is not making things great again in your community at hashtag belabored. Over now. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, hell no, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belaboured podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured.